The scripture reading for today's meditation is from Lamentations 2, verses 8 to 13. The Lord determined to lay in ruins the wall of the daughter of Zion. He stretched out the measuring line. He did not restrain his hand from destroying. He caused rampart and wall to lament. They languished together. Her gates have sunk into the ground. He has ruined and broken her bars. Her king and princes are among the nations. The law is no more, and her prophets find no vision from the Lord. The elders of the daughter of Zion sit on the ground in silence. They have thrown dust on their heads and put on sackcloth. The young women of Jerusalem have bowed their heads to the ground. My eyes are spent with weeping, my stomach churns, my bile is poured out to the ground because of the destruction of the daughter of my people, because infants and babies faint in the streets of the city. They cry to their mothers, where is bread and wine, as they faint like a wounded man in the streets of the city, as their life is poured out on their mother's bosom. What can I say for you? To what can I compare you, O daughter of Jerusalem? What can I liken to you that I may comfort you, O virgin daughter of Zion? For your ruin is vast as the sea. Who can heal you? The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. This second lament is a tragedy. All the words that make us squirm are littered throughout it like smoldering tree stumps after a forest fire. Anger, wrath, fury, indignation, scorn. Now, this poet, in case you're wondering, is not describing Central Expressway during rush hour. And... He's not describing the evening news commentary after a troubled political season. And he is, believe it or not, not even describing Texas Ranger fans after another blown bullpen loss. No, those things, of course, are all infinitely trivial in comparison to what this poet is describing. He has cast down. He has not remembered. He has brought down. He has cut down. He has burned up. He has poured out. He has laid waste. All of that is this poet's language in this lament. And what is this poet lamenting in his grief? The posture of the Lord God towards his beloved covenant people. He says the Lord has become like an enemy. He has swallowed up Israel. The Lord God was angry. And needless for us to say, He was right in His anger. Three months ago, my wife Mary and I had the great privilege and fun and joy of gathering with a tour group from Covenant Theological Seminary to take a study tour of what we call the Holy Land of Israel. For 12 days in January, we walked the ancient streets and we hiked the dusty paths and we climbed over and around the stones. 
lots and lots and lots of stones. Many of those have been tumbled down and strewn about from their original structures for centuries. Many others, though, of course, remain just as they were placed 2,000 years ago or even longer. One such place is what many call the Western Wall in Jerusalem. Some have called it before the Wailing Wall. There at that wall, daily, and I can guarantee you even right now, daily, gather Orthodox Jews to issue some of the most fervent prayers that I have personally ever witnessed in my life. They recite the Psalms from their Hebrew Scriptures praying with all of their might, bobbing back and forth and back and forth before that wall as if to push their prayers through the wall. They lament the destruction of the second temple by the Romans 2,000 years ago, and they, of course, lament the loss of their holy site, pressing themselves, as it were, against the stones of that wall because They can get no closer to their holy God than that. It was, of course, out of concern for walls and stones that made them that this poet lamented, saying, the Lord determined to lay in ruins the wall of the daughter of Zion, the wall of Jerusalem and his holy place. Though to be sure, that wall represented something far more precious to the Lord than rocks. For centuries, God's people had turned faithless hearts away from his faithless love. And now, by the hand of God himself, the stones had gospel lessons to teach about what they themselves cannot do. For one, stones cannot protect what God intends to break. In modern Jerusalem today, when you travel with a biblical archaeologist, as we did, you quickly realize that there are two kings that you hear about, and they are not the ones that you might expect. These two kings, in particular, are remembered for the archaeological treasures, the remains that they left for us even to this day. One of those kings is Hezekiah. King Hezekiah became king of Judah in about the year 715 B.C., and he was, by all accounts in Scripture, a faithful king, faithful to the Lord despite his faults, which were many. One archaeological treasure that Hezekiah left behind for us was a tunnel dug through the rock to channel the water of the Gihon Spring preserving that valuable resource for Jerusalem in his day. And you can walk through that tunnel, even through the rushing water from that spring to this very day. The second archaeological treasure that Hezekiah left for us, though, of course, is a wall. The king of Assyria, having conquered the northern tribes of Israel some years before, now came threatening the southern tribes, Judah at Jerusalem, even coming as far as envoys to the wall to boast and to brag and to threaten. No God can stop us. No military might can stop the king of Assyria, they boasted. And so Hezekiah put his men 
hard to work, laboring to repair the old wall of Jerusalem and even going so far as to build a new wall outside of the old one, hoping to protect his city. And as you walk through the old city of Jerusalem today, you come across an excavation of that wall. It's fascinating to see it. It had been, of course, buried for centuries under more modern construction. And that excavation is some 65 meters long, and it shows Hezekiah's wall to be seven meters thick, 22 feet of solid stone. Hezekiah meant business because he knew the king of Assyria meant business as well. Now, by God's grace, that wall was not needed in Hezekiah's day. But after another century of unfaithfulness by the people of Israel and its kings, God's patience turned to anger and a new king, Nebuchadnezzar, and a new power, Babylon, would lay siege to that wall and the lamentations would begin. Because stones cannot protect what God intends to break. And that's actually good news. Because the good news of the gospel for us is that what God really intends to break is stone. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give to you a heart of flesh. I will put a new spirit in you and move you to follow all my ways. The prophet would have us to see that the stones that God is after are not rocks on the ground, but they are rather people in his image. The Apostle Paul would build upon that, insisting, continue to work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, causing you to will and to act according to his good purpose. God intends to break through our stony hearts to make them new. And so our joining with our ancient brothers and sisters and fathers and mothers in Lamenting our own unfaithfulness during Holy Week should only highlight God's great faithfulness to us because not only can stones not protect what God intends to break, but they cannot restore what God intends to heal either. The second king that you hear about as you travel through Jerusalem with a biblical archaeologist nowadays, is not just Hezekiah, but Herod. Herod the Great. King Herod. Yes, the infamous one. He's the one whose name really reigns throughout Jerusalem in its memory today. Herod was Jewish by his heritage, his father having been Jewish, but he was really Roman at heart. He was named the king of the Jews, by the Roman Senate, out of expedience in his day, and he sought to establish his kingdom by restoring outward strength to his Jewish heritage. Outward strength, not inward strength, but outward strength. And so, greater than all of the fortresses that King Herod the Great built, and there were a number of great fortresses that he built, but greater than those fortresses even was his renovation of the temple. 
including his addition and expansion of the Temple Mount and adding a massive retaining wall all the way around the Temple Mount. That wall, massive as it is, still stands today, most of it. And on the western side of it is that wailing wall, the western wall where the Orthodox Jews gather even today. Herod built these things, this wall maybe especially, in order to flex his muscle. He built these things to establish a name for himself. He built these things to restore what he thought would make him great. In some ways, Herod used massive stones in an attempt to heal himself. Even today, we know the feeling, don't we? We take great stock in building great things in hopes of restoration and healing. We, we build great cities and great civilizations. We build great institutions and great traditions. We build great governments and great militaries. We build great schools and even great churches. Thanks be to God for the churches that he's granted to us, right? But the Gospel of Lamentations tells us that nothing made by human hands can save. Not the walls of Jerusalem, the daughter of Zion. Not the gates of those walls. Not a thousand years of royal might within those walls. And not even something so significant as the bricks and mortar of a church. Nothing with human fingerprints on it, is indispensable to God's redemptive work. At the southwest corner of that Temple Mount, as we were there with our, our tour guide and talking about some other details that we could see there, I noticed below us a massive, huge pile of stones gathered down on the ancient pavement, which was crushed beneath it. And I asked our tour guide about it. Tell me about that pile of stones there. Doesn't seem to gather much attention. And he explained, he said, you know, in 70 AD, some 600 years after the poet wrote these lamentations, the Roman army swarmed into Jerusalem and once again, as they had in previous days, toppled all that mattered there. And Herod's retaining wall was too massive for them to completely demolish. But from the top of the southwest corner, they sent hewn limestone blocks, five tons apiece, tumbling 90 feet down to crush the pavement below, and there that pile remains today, unmoved and unable to restore what God intends to heal. What can heal you? Who can heal you? You know, those Orthodox Jews, as they gather today, they're at that Western Wall. Why? Why do you think they gather there? Why do they gather outside that Western Wall, outside the Temple Mount? Some of you, I'm sure, have been there before. Why do they gather there outside of that wall? It's because it's as close as they can get to where they want to be. As you step up onto the ramp that leads up onto the Temple Mount, as tourist groups as ours did so often do, you recognize that you pass through a security check, and above that security check is a prominent sign 
that says this, announcement and warning from the chief rabbi of Israel, according to Torah law, entering the Temple Mount area is strictly forbidden due to the holiness of the site. Orthodox Jews cannot go up there. It's not known precisely where on that Temple Mount the Holy of Holies was situated. The holiest place of the temple itself. The place where only one person could go and even at that, the high priest one time per year and only that man could stand in God's presence and find healing for God's people. They can't go up there lest they should walk into that unknown spot and fall dead on the ground because of the holiness of God that's there. But thanks be to God that during Holy Week we remember and recall together that a greater high priest has come. The Son of God Himself who escorts us not just onto the Temple Mount, but into the presence of the Father Himself by faith in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, you are healed in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.